Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to take a big section, but it goes together. We're going to look at verses 11, chapter 9, verse 11, through chapter 11, verse 6. Incongruities and perseverance. Uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father and God, we ask of your favor today as we open up your word to explore the incongruous nature of life in this beautiful world of yours. We ask, Holy Spirit, for perseverance as we navigate the complexities we're facing now and what we will face tomorrow. Teach us to number our days so we might live soberly unto you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So once again, we have in this section what seems to be a series of disjointed proverbs and thought illustrations. However, uh, they do connect together. Uh, Ecclesiastes is kind of this uh, string of uh, proverbs with some observations, and so they seem disjointed, but they're really not. They are connected, and while different um, commentators, different theologians will break this section up a hundred different ways, um, I decided to uh, connect it in this way and break it up this way for reasons uh, that I think you'll see. Um, next week, Lord willing, we will we'll finish the book. So I'm going to reverse engineer this thing. So flip to chapter 11, verse 6. Um, hold your finger in chapter 9 there. Go to chapter 11, verse 6. We're going to reverse engineer it. I want you to see the end. Knowing the end should help see us where we're headed. So that's the intention here, and I'll read it before we go back to chapter 9. So chapter 11, verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. So <clears throat> keep in mind that this is the conclusion of a very, very long set of wisdom and foolishness illustrations. And the conclusion, he says, is connected to servanthood dominion in the midst of incongruities of this world. How do Christians function in a world that is vain, um, that seems maybe to not line up altogether? Um, how, do we, how do we live in that type of world? Well, we're, we're going to find out. Sow your seed, he says, as in do your work. Don't give yourself to idleness. Um, and since you do not know the outcome of your sowing, um, don't stop and assume otherwise, he says. Sow your seed. Work. Trust God. Work some more. Sabbath, right? Rest. Work some more. With faith, with perseverance, marking the entire process. So go back to chapter 9. And we're just going to work our way through um, somewhat rather quickly, but I want us to get through the text so we can uh, see what we're dealing with. Chapter 9, verse 11. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. In other words... Races can be won by those who were last getting off the line. Battles can be won by people other than the troops. Wisdom doesn't automatically get you bread and food. Um, there are wealthy people who lack discernment. And you might be pretty well skilled at something, but you might end up being last. Why? Well, he says time and chance changes things. And chance, by the way, is not this impersonal randomness, uh, uh, sort of... Um, 
the uh, Vantillian critique of brute facts. <laughs> the, we don't uh, serve fate as this um, incoherent God that doesn't exist. Chance is not that either. Chance is rather opportunity, happenstance. Time and circumstances take place in this world. And we love to try and control that which we can't control, but it doesn't stop us from trying, right? We all like to try to control those things. So things happen and God is never surprised like we typically are. Verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Your time, he says here, is your time to die. And none of us controls that appointment. Sometimes it comes when you least expect it, like Nemo and Dory floating along and suddenly Annette snags the whole family and now we have this sad emotional story to help our kids work through. <laughs> the point is man falls prey to death. That's his argument. Man falls prey to death. It's unexpected. It's unavoidable. None of us have a calendar that says, aha, this is going to be the end in 30 years on this day at this time. That's my time. No one controls that. Only God does. He is the sovereign one. So what, <laughs> what Ecclesiastes says is just try to be happy about that. <laughs> be okay with that. Verse 13. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it. Here's our thought illustration for the day. A small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounding it, and constructed large siege works, or ramps, to get up the walls, against it. Verse 15, But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. See, poverty inhibits wisdom, but so does wealth. In this situation, either the poor man, he delivered the city and received no honor, or he would have delivered it and no one took him seriously. Um, probably the latter. Arrogance never, has to ch <laughs> Arrogance never has time to cross-check certain protocols. Who has time when the city is being besieged to listen to a poor man who may have wisdom to offer? Who has time? Well, not people who are prideful. Look at verse 16. So I said... Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. See, not only should we listen to wisdom, we should also simultaneously drown out the clanging symbol that is stupidity. Usually the fool, the fool will bloviate noisily, will talk the loudest, will get to the front, will be rather ostentatious in his behavior. But wisdom, we know, is tempered. Wisdom is tempered and wisdom is quiet. It's not noisy like the fool. Just because it's loud doesn't mean it's wise. Thinking of the news today. <laughs> Just because it's loud doesn't mean it's wise. In this case, the squeaky wheel probably shouldn't get the oil. Verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much Good. What is he talking about? Well, wisdom instructs us in how to use weapons of war. We need to know how to use them, of course. But if we go the route of the fool, the ignoramus, we'll blow ourselves up, right? The problem isn't the weapons, it's the person using the weapons. One simpleton can go ahead and pull the pin and he can set their grenade off in the bunker where his friends are. 
That's foolishness. He goes on, chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Let me um, transpose this into today. Coffee stains, ink stains, and a little barbecue sauce on the tie is a whole lot worse than going to the business meeting without a tie. Someone's going to see that. He says, um, a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Someone who is wise, who is known to be wise, who's known to be respected, and, and yet he has this moment of tomfoolery. He does more damage than a fool who, like a broken clock, sometimes can get things right. See, everyone expects the fool to smell awful. No one expects the Armani suit guy to smell bad. Dead flies make the perfumer's oil stink. Verse 2, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Now, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to resist the urge to make this about Democrats being fools and Republicans being always wise because they're the right and the other team's the left, right? That's silly. <laughs> they're all sorely lacking in wisdom anyway. We all know that. The right hand in, in Scripture symbolizes strength. It symbolizes wisdom. It symbolizes competence and understanding and knowledge. How does he apply it? Verse 3, even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. <laughs> uh, this week, for, for us, we went on a bike ride, breaking all protocols. Don't tell anyone, although this is going to be on the internet, so I guess I just turned myself in. Um, but we also uh, found um, joy in the midst of going to the mailbox, a kind of a newfound joy. <laughs> The fool, it made me think of this, this verse, the fool will find some way to make his trip to the mailbox more complicated than he ought. He says, even when a fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he's a fool. See, the point is, what we do tells the world what we are. So be careful in what it is you're broadcasting to the world. Verse 4, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays or, or diminishes or puts to rest great offenses. There is always wisdom in keeping your cool. Sometimes that's hard. But especially, he says, he goes back to the king's advisory role. Don't, don't always, if the king gets mad at you, don't always just storm off. Sometimes keeping your cool goes a long way. If you recall the Proverbs, soft an a soft answer turns away wrath. That sort of thing. 5, 6, and 7. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. You see all these incongruities? I have seen slaves riding on horses, and princes walking like slaves on the land. Wisdom like folly is no respecter of socioeconomic considerations. Verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Regardless of your economic prowess, anyone can dig a pit, and guess what? Anyone can fall in it. No matter if you're the Queen of England, you can dig a pit, and you can fall in it. Um, anyone can move around some rocks at the edge of your property, and what might happen, a snake may come out and slither out and voice his venomous concerns to you incongruities. Verse 9, he who queries 
Quarry stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. Stones are very much, they're hard, and thus they can be helpful, but they can also be harmful. Um, loggers, <laughs> we had some trees uh, on our property that were taken down recently, so it made me think of this, but part of what Koheleth is telling us is loggers, for example, are always at risk of chopping down a tree and may land on something of value, like his friends or himself, or a house or a car. That's the nature of the incongruities of life. You all may have heard this one before in verse 10. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So no one goes out and chops wood with a golf club. No one should. And thoughtful people, we always count the cost, both in dollars and in time. For whatever project sits in front of them, that's what we're supposed to do. See, tools are great. Tools are um, economically advantageous. Figuring out ways to be more efficient, run your business more with less expenses, more higher margins, more profit, more sustainability, those types of things. That's good. Tools are great. But wisdom to use the tool efficiently is even greater, he says. Back to the snake in verse 11. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Uh, if you have a KJV, it adds, and a babbler is no better. There's a connection here. In other words, uh, snake charmers, they prefer not to be bitten before the act is over, right? <laughs> it's bad for business if that happens. But like a snake which can bring ruin to a man's enterprise, his snake charming business, a tongue can inflict just as much harm. Speaking of words, verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. Verse 13, the beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? See, wise he makes this observation, wise people give grace to their hearers. Fools eat them. Wise people give grace with their words to their hearers. Fools eat them. Fools use words to consume those who are listening. The problem with words, and this is a blessing and a curse, <laughs> the problem with words is that they are a reflection of the person saying them. What, what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's happening in your heart. So words will either serve the listeners or they will make the hearers run in the other direction. Speaking of directions and nautical deficiencies, verse 15, the toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. I love this verse. Fools can't get to DC. Maybe fools go to DC. Maybe we should say the opposite too. See, not only does the fool multiply his words and try to consume his listeners, he multiplies speculation about the future. Who can know, right? His stupidity means that he can find himself basically unable to read a map. That's how foolish, foolish he is. Of course he can't read the map. He's too busy talking and talking some more. Who has time to listen for directions anyway? Woe to you. 
O land, verse 16, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Inexperienced rulers are a curse to a land. They are a curse to a land. A king of nobility is a blessing, so much so that his eating, for example, is tapered solely for strength and not self-inflicted harm and debauchery. Kings of nobility, he says, eat for strength. Sort of the, uh, do you live to eat or do you eat to live mindset. That's what kings of nobility do. Through indolence, again, we have a series of Proverbs. He, He just keeps going. All these incongruities in life, things don't always match up. Verse 18, through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Interesting. Laziness foregoes upkeep on the house, and as a result, everyone suffers. You don't want the rafters falling in on you. Things don't go well. Verse 19. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Interesting verse, by the way. Paul says in 1 Timothy that money is the root of all sorts of evil. Kohala says money is the answer to everything. What does he mean? Hang on. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. You know the whole, a little birdie, a little birdie told me so? That's, that's where that idea comes from. In a hint of sarcasm and hyperbole, food and drink, we know, only go so far. Food and drink only go so far. Eventually, you have to stop eating, um, lest you destroy your own self, and take a break, and then come back to it. That's that vain sort of uh, a time to eat and a time not to eat thing. He says money, though, buys food and drink. See, the fool takes the food and the drink in and of itself and only considers that, just like the unwise king. But the wise man knows that money, in other words, Man's productive uh, proclivities. He, he, he works. He labors. Why? So he can provide for his family. So he can work. He can labor. So money is the answer in that regard. It's not just about the food and the drink. It's about the entirety of a man's life, his, his call to serve on dominion, his call to obedience to Christ. And he says also there's this problem of little birdies that sit perched up on the windowsill listening to whatever sort of malfeasance you might be up to. He says, don't do that. Word gets around quickly. Kids, uh, just to talk to you for a second. um, There's this beautiful truth in Scripture that also should serve us uh, in a way of hesitation. Our words and what we say and even the thoughts of our minds, the Lord knows those things. He knows those things. So that, that should bother us in a sense that we should be careful what we say. We should use our words wisely, um, but it also should be helpful because we know that God is gracious and he is good and that we can run to him and turn to him. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. This is another sort of incongruity, but he's going to kind of drive home his point here. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. 
Now, verse 2 answers verse 1. What does cast your bread on the waters mean? Kind of a, a debate here. But I think it's doing righteous business. I think it's tithing. It's, it's um, almsgiving. It's being people of charity, being generous. God gives us real-time historical feedback in a variety of ways. That's why the scripture says um, it's better to give than to receive. Why? Because in our giving, we're giving of ourselves. We're, we're, self, we're serving someone else. There's blessing in those types of things. He says, essentially, that exhibiting faith in the arena of business, in the arena of charity, helps in the immediate. But you don't know what misfortune might turn. You, might, you don't know what misfortune might, might, might come. There is still a lot of uncertainty about what we've been talking about, uh, the economic issues of, of the day. There's still a lot of uncertainty, but that doesn't mean we stop being charitable. That doesn't mean we stop giving and serving to others. That doesn't mean we stop laboring and working. No, we, we keep persevering, as we'll see. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. <laughs> I'm going to come back to this. Wow, that's wisdom. Whenever a tree falls, there it lies. He's, there's a point here. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Now, you might say <laughs> that Solomon is simply pointing out the obvious about rainfall and tree fall. And you'd be right. I think he is. I think he's pointing out the obvious. But the reason he's doing it is because the obviousness is sometimes things, it's something we sometimes miss. We miss that. And while we're here, <clears throat> observing these facts and observing and only observing these facts, that doesn't really pay the bills, does it? Staring at the clouds, staring at the trees. Well, that, that doesn't pay the bills. See, one can gaze at the sky with, while wielding an axe and thank the Lord for the rain and the rain in the sky and, and, and just have a, a blessed time of worship as he works. Um, thanking God that the rain dumps on his crops. You know, praising God in that moment. The, the obvious things that are appearing to be vain. But then you can have a guy who can be outside, gaze, gaze in, in, in the sky with no axe in his hand, and another guy, he'll just complain. He'll complain about the rain. Incongruities. What do we do with that? Here's what I think. Work and gratitude go hand in hand. Work and gratitude go hand in hand. And while we don't fully understand how God, for example, takes this microscopic embryo and puts bones together during the process of gest gestation. We don't fully get how that, it just works, it happens. Even though we don't understand, we can trust God, and I think that that is sufficient. And now we're back to the verse six where we started, the very end. He says, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. All right. I'm going to try to put it all together now. Life is full of incongruities. Things don't always add up. Things don't always go the way we would assume they should go. Things are oftentimes beyond common sensibilities. All you have to do 
is, as I know Jordan and I have been <laughs> interacting on this, all you have to do is try to sort through the malaise of all the facts that are coming out. Uh, in Italy, this is the, the percentage of those who have the virus and die. And all this stuff is out there. All, all this stuff is out there, these, these incongruities, social issues, political issues, economic issues. If you're paying attention to the text, the preacher touches on all of those things. He's talked about kings and their governance. He's talked about the worker out in the field, the logger in the forest. He's talked about it all. So the previous passage that we looked at last week um, touched on the issue of injustice, if you recall, because the sentence is not carried out speedily, quickly, men will do more evil. So all these weird things happen. And they're not weird to God, but to us, we look at the world and all these incongruous things happen. And we're trying to sort through it. What do we do? All of life seems incongruous. The vanity is sometimes unpredictable. Sometimes it's completely arbitrary, like the Fed lowering the rates to 0%, but printing more money. <laughs> um, life as we know it seems to be right now uncertain. So who can know the future and figure out what comes next? If, if this vanity-stricken precariousness is the case, and we've touched on all of it in this study of Ecclesiastes, what hope do we have? See, one thing, one thing resounds through the entire text. Wisdom does not always provide assurances. Wisdom does not always provide assurances. Wisdom is extremely helpful, but it's not everything. And while we're here, let me differentiate for you between wisdom and knowledge. The difference between wisdom and knowledge is your hands. That's, that's my conclusion, what he said in these couple of chapters. The difference between wisdom and knowledge is your hands. A person might know something to be objectively factual, but the wise woman knows what to do with it. And I'm pulling this from when he says, <laughs> the clouds, have you ever seen clouds? Well, the real clouds, not the fake clouds today. Um, you look at the clouds, what do they do? They swell, they get darker. When that swelling occurs, what happens? Rain falls. Isn't that amazing? You ever just thought that's amazing? It's, it's amazing. When a tree falls down, there it lies. <laughs> Look at life, the way it goes, it springs upon us. We have um, leaves coming out of the trees, flowers are sprouting up forth, and, 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 and it's this marvelous time of year. I love this time of year, because the weather starts to get nice, and the brown goes away, and we get to see green. It's sort of an Eden-type moment. But you may know things to be factual. You may know that a tree falls, and there it is. What do you do with that tree? Why did God give us trees? What's the point of the trees? Yeah, we get oxygen, but we can make some pretty cool stuff with it. That's the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowing something to be true and doing something with that truth. Christians are the, to be the latter. See, if the lumberjack's knowledge of the trade stops at simply being a strong man, he's not going to sharpen his axe, and thus he's going to look rather foolish when his wife asks him what took so long. Well, I'm a strong guy. I had this axe. Did you sharpen it? <laughs> Were you efficient? Did you use the tool to the glory of God and be wise with it? Oh, well, no, I'm just a strong man. 
well, you're a strong man, but you're a fool. See, the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1.7 says, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, knowledge starts with the fear of God, a holy, reverent respect and wonder at the majesty of the Almighty. That's where knowledge begins. You don't know anything, at least justified knowledge, unless you start with a fear of God. See, this, this seed of fear, when it's planted in the heart of a humble man who's reverent before God, brings forth the wisdom and maturation needed to live in God's world. And not just live in God's world. Too many people are just living in God's world. We need to persevere in God's world, to labor in God's world, to be servants of dominion, being um, productive in our workplace. Uh, always figuring out ways to grow in our understanding of God's world, mathematics, history, all of it. We, we should be pursuing it. So we don't just live, we persevere. And perseverance is downstream from wisdom. And wisdom flows from the springs of God's grace. See, no doubt, we are living in a time of uncertainty and a time of speculation. Solomon's observations about wisdom being ignored are rather comical at, at times. I just think it's funny to see the guy out with the, with the, uh, with the unsharpened axe trying to chop down a tree. I think, he, I think we're supposed to laugh at that. So they are comical at times, but also they are sad stories of men and women who prefer autonomy instead of God's perfect law, which according to Psalm, uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, I believe, revives the soul chopping down a tree with a blunted axe. That's funny, but it's actually sad. See, if there's one thing that this whole coronavirus thing has taught us, it's that we're, we're really not as mature and, and smart as we think we are. We're really not. We're not as mature and not as smart as we think we are. Uncertainty and fear gives birth to panic and trepidation. So we are, we are quick to give our freedoms away, and one thing tyrannical governments are good at is supplying that demand. There's even talk now of suspending constitutional rights. Now, if the state gives the rights, they can take the rights away. But the state is not God. So the question is, well, back to, back to my question, how do, we, how do we have hope? How do we have hope in these incongruous um, the things that we see before us. Well, here's what I think. Uncertainty is not the time for speculation. It's an opportunity to trust in the sovereignty of God. And not a blind trust in the sense of, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm going to choose to, to uh, not, you know, use basic protocol and nutrition for myself and my family. <laughs> I'm just going to sort of wing it. No, 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 no. We're, we're called to be wise. Don't use the blunted axe. Use the sharp axe. Uncertainty is not the time for speculation. It's the time for trust in the sovereignty of God. See, note, note the problem that Koheleth, the preacher, sees. Men who stare at the clouds and walk past the tree that's fallen. This slackly attitude of neglecting work and haphazardly making one's way through life is one way of living. You can live your life that way. The welfare state breeds that. Just, just exist. You, you can have a good education, have a well-paying job, and be a total derelict. 
You can do it. You can talk yourself out of any adverse situation or, or talk others into bending them to your will. You can be a magical wordsmithy and you can still be plagued and crippled with doubt. Why? Because you speculate and you only speculate. That's it. See, incongruities are opportunities for faith in the sovereign orchestration of God. Circumstances, listen to this, Circumstances do not dictate your wisdom, they reveal your wisdom. Circumstances do not dictate our wisdom, they reveal our wisdom. If you have something bad happen to you, it's not going to only give you wisdom in the future, though it will shape you. It's going to reveal the wisdom that you have in the moment, the maturity that you have in the moment. See, if, if wisdom isn't cultivated in our families, in our churches, and in, in, in our nations, if maturity isn't planted and watered with, with prayer and scripture and obedience to God's law word, then circumstances are going to dash you against the rocks. And you won't know what to do. You will panic. You will fear. And you'll go to the grocery store with trash, can, or trash bags all over you, masks, gloves, and you are scared to death. I still think you should wash your hands. But there's a difference between washing your hands in faith and trust to God than washing your hands because you are scared to death and you have no faith, you have no trust. See, the fool allows uncertainty. The fool allows all these incongruities of life to toss him like a canoe in the middle of a hurricane. The wise person strategizes. The wise person, wise person adapts. If you don't think the edge of that blade is cutting through the tree, what should you do? You should strategize. You should adapt. That's what God demands from his people, his covenant people. Strategize, adapt. Uh, this, the wise person thinks more efficiently on how to accomplish the dominion that God has placed before him. Okay? She plans and she prepares, but not out of fear of man, but out of the fear of the living God. The wise, the wise person doesn't buckle under pressure, but trusts God through the pressure. Trial by fire is how holiness works in our lives. And this trial by fire, like a sword forged in the fire and beaten on the anvil, is how we persevere. And Christ is our example. His unwavering commitment to do the Father's will with the Spirit's anointing is ours in Him. We have His Spirit. We have regenerated hearts. We have what we need. Na navigating the, the vanity with joy and pleasure, hard work and sweat is ours in Christ. That's ours. And why is it ours? Because that's what Jesus did. He, he sweat. He worked. And He did so with, with joy in his heart, in his heart, with obedience in his hands. The perseverance God demands from us is actually something God grants to us as a gift. We are Christ's, Christ is ours. His endurance, his wisdom, his joy that was set, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews says. It, for us, I mean, we don't always heed that, Right? Not everybody heeded that. The religious leaders didn't think Jesus was quite wise. They actually thought him to be a fool. 
They didn't listen, and of course they perished because of it. His axe, taken to the tree of Israel's covenantal apostasy, was as sharp as it gets. The gospel frees us to live boldly, taking risks, calculated, wise risks, by faith for the glory of God. And of course, we make several excuses, don't we? Two of which are the foremost excuses we make. Here they are. You'll know what I mean. Number one, time or opportunity. And I don't have the time. As if we are creatures of this, this nebulous God of time who's so, um, he begrudgingly gives us a little bit, but only if we had more. Maybe we could make him happy. That's one excuse. Second excuse is ability or faithfulness. See, 1 Corinthians 5.58 declares that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. So cast your bread on the waters. Sharpen your axe. You have as much time as the rest of us, and what God wants is for us to be faithful in our job. See, we each have a post, so stay there. Be watchful, right? The watchman on the wall. Be vigilant. Be a mom for the glory of God. Be a dad for the glory of God. Work hard at your job for the glory of God. And when you get home, you can rest. You can enjoy the fruit of your labor. Eat, drink, be merry. Why? Because God is on the throne. He says in verse 6 there, Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Your calling when faced with incongruity is to stay at it. You, you do not control the outcome. Your, your job is to plant and water, plant and water, plant and water, rinse, repeat. That's our job. So let's, I'm going to end with these two thoughts. One, what's the cure to struggling with prayer, for example? That's a way to sharpen your axe, is prayer. Have we been in prayer during this time of incongruity? I, I'm, the solution to struggling with it is, is to, to pray. <laughs> to pray. Don't act like life depends on you. The reason we don't pray is because we don't think we need God to handle anything because we've got it. So we'll look to the state. They'll fix it. The CDC, they'll fix it. Now, are you in prayer right now with current circumstances? What's the cure to knowing God's will? The Bible. Read it often. If you want to persevere, if you want to have a sharp axe, if you want to, to uh, 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 live your life for the glory of God, you, you have to stop acting like you are the sole means of perseverance and fruitfulness. You're not. God is. As chapter 9, verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. In other words, the Bible is not a handbook for what to do when you get to heaven. It's for now. So he says, you can't do any of that in Sheol. I think I said this last week. You don't pull out your planner in Sheol and plan your day. Death comes to all, he says, so do your work with all your might, not some of your might, all of your might. In Christ you can do it because in Christ you are whole. So I'm going to pray, but I'm going to take a prayer that was from the Book of Common Prayer. And in light of the, the, this um, uh, pandemic, uh, I want to 
um, I want to pray this because it's fitting for the, for the hour. Let's pray. O most mighty and merciful God, in this time of grievous sickness, we flee unto thee for, for divine aid. Deliver us, we beseech thee, from our peril. Give strength and skill to all those who minister to the sick. Prosper the means made use of for their cure. And grant that perceiving how frail and uncertain our life is, we may apply our hearts unto that heavenly wisdom which leads to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.